0: Thank you. I can tell Josh is one of those guys that just would have hung out with, right? And even a- like in AA, probably drinking too. You know what I mean? We'd have probably gotten a lot of trouble together. Uh, he leaves some beautiful messages. Nice. You, you can tell he's coming from a rich yes. fellowship place. And uh, uh, I'm so happy to be here as a result of that, Josh. Thank you for having me. I love the Deep South accent. We Canadians, we don't actually have an accent. You guys think we say things like a boot? and stuff like that that just never happens and i and i don't know how like that made it onto south park you know what i mean like i have no idea we don't talk funny up here we i might say things like a and stuff like that when you guys say huh a or huh i'll take a all day uh but uh mississippi uh thank you thank you for having me i um i I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, if, if you had asked me to come down there, Josh, by hook or by crook, uh, to walk down there to, uh, to do this, and not because I, I like to hear the sound of my own voice or, or anything like that, but. Because I I am so uh, enamored and grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous for everything in my life that's come about. I hope I can express that adequately tonight, but I owe Alcoholics Anonymous everything and it would never be an imposition for me to do something like that. So coming on here in the comfort of my own home, sitting here with a tie and a shirt and a jacket on, uh, shorts, I got shorts on, I I do have pants on. Right in the middle of the Toronto Maple Leaf Stanley Cup game, I might add. <laughs> it's for you guys that don't know what that is. Hockey is a sport that we really like up here. And the playoffs started on Monday night. So exciting times up here. And uh, I was going to put the game on behind the screen with the volume down. and thought, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I, I, would, I need to focus. I need to be with you. And uh, uh, because, because. And, and when I talk about my gratitude, It's hinging on something uh, uh, that that occurred to me a a while back is that I'll often hear people say when I came to the doors of AA or when I got to the doors of AA, when I got to AA, those kinds of things, uh, that was not my experience in uh, early in the early 80s to the mid 80s, Alcoholics Anonymous kept coming to me. I never came to it. And I want to emphasize that because anybody here that does the kind of work that is on all three sides of the triangle, getting the message out, reaching out to people, going to institutions, carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous, guys like me owe you their lives. I owe you my life. And, uh, uh, you know, so again, how much of an imposition is it to me to, to sort of come together, have a few laughs, share a few stories and and, and hopefully inspire somebody to, to make some changes? And uh, that, that's really what we're here for. I don't know if there's anybody new in the room. We didn't qualify anybody that way. I'm just going to tell you my story because I feel like I'm making some new friends here tonight. I feel bad for Chris and gyps and, and even Ryan and Risa. I mean, they've heard, me, they've heard me talk so many times, but the fact of the matter is, is, is my experiences is, is tied up in in, 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 what it was like, what I was like, what happened, then what happened and what I'm like today. That's, that's, that's what I've got for you. And, uh, uh, and, and the energy around, around how I understand this is um, it's charged. And uh, what will happen is I'm stumbling into the gate right now, but once I get in there, I'm like a wild stallion. I'm just going to go with whatever comes out. But What's really important to me is that is that you do stick around for a few minutes after, and if you do have any questions, concerns, or complaints about Alcoholics Anonymous, you have a chance to air them so that we can all laugh together and maybe try to help you through any of this stuff. Uh, I uh, alcohol. I mean, I, I I mean, I didn't even know. I had no idea that my life was a shambles. I had no idea that it was so broken and busted up. I had no idea that it was so damaged until it wasn't you know i grew up in this irish alcoholic home uh we 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 had i had an older brother younger brother and a younger sister i had an alcoholic father and a mom who never touched a drop uh i she looked after all of us all of us uh, we got folks in the family. My mom looked after us and her mother was alcoholic. Uh, there was alcoholism that ran rampant through her family. The Cosgrove side is, is legendary for their drinking and their, and their, their trouble. Um, it's just been a big part of my life. There has never been, in my estimation, anybody in my family that's a successful drinker. You know, and I don't even know what that is, to be honest with you. So I wouldn't know how to define it anyways, but I've never actually seen it. I've had a a relationship with alcohol. that has been bizarre since I was a kid. And, uh, what I mean by that is I'm talking about at a young age and, 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 and oftentimes I'll hearken my guys to go back there and just try to understand where alcohol showed up in their life. And, and I remember being, you know, six, seven years old and, and, and family going on a vacation or family going on over to somebody's place to, to celebrate some, something. And, uh we'd load up the car and the way it would go is uh, mom would be doing all the loading. Dad would be nowhere to be found, but mom would be doing all the loading up. And the first things that would go in there would be all the, uh, all the playing equipment, the sports, the baseball gloves, bats, all that kind of stuff, all the toys and that. And then the next thing that will go in were all the kids clothes. And then the next thing that will go in is all mom's clothes. And then somewhere dad would walk out with a small little shaving kit with his clothes and a great big cooler. And in the cooler was a couple of jugs of whiskey, a couple of jugs of vodka, some beer, bacon, and you know, stuff like that, moose meat, that kind of stuff in the cooler. And the big cooler would get lifted up and put into the trunk and there'd be no room for, this big cooler well out would go mom's clothes out would go the toys and all that kind of stuff that cooler was coming with us and I tell that story because I was witness to that knowing how important this was my relationship with alcohol was demonstrated for me at a young age I remember coming up the stairs on a Sunday morning Saturday Sunday morning my dad drank bromo seltzer all the time but I'd come up the stairs it'd be seven eight o'clock in the morning I'm just a kid and my old man would be sitting there drinking a Bloody Mary uh, with vodka and, and tomato juice, very little tomato juice and, and lots of vodka. And that'd be every Saturday or Sunday morning. And learned later was taking the hair of the dog that bit him. You know, it's just, he was constantly hung over, sick from alcohol or actually drinking and, and experiencing the, the, well, the benefits of alcohol. And I, so I was witness to that. You know, it was the only love relationship I ever witnessed that was successful in my father's life. He beat my mother. He beat us kids. He had arguments and fights with everybody he ever met, business partners. My father was an angry, raging alcoholic and that was his life. And, but I watched him with that vodka or that whiskey always, always there. It was the only love relationship I was ever witnessed to was him and his chosen substance. That's it. That's how I grew up. I remember being seven years old and pulling the blanket over my head, hearing him put the hands on my mother again, you know? And I remember eight and nine years old and coming up the stairs and trying to get in between them and, and be a man and, and not be so scared because the rules in my house were don't talk, don't trust, don't feel, don't tell anybody what you're feeling. That You know, that those were the rules in my home. Men, and men don't cry. You don't show any emotion, that kind of stuff. Now, this is oh, I'm telling this stuff because on the other side of that, I'm playing hockey and I'm fishing and I'm I'm hanging out with my buddies and I'm swinging off of ropes into water like you see joyous, uh, you know, st- these these sort of depictions of joyousness. And, and I had this incredible childhood growing up of hunting and fishing and being a, uh, really attached to nature. And, and I got to tell you. When I say that I had no idea how broken I was, I didn't. And at eight years old, I was, we were living down here in the, down in the South again for a little while. And I was sexually abused at eight years old, but again, was compartmentalized that in such a way that it never, ever affected me in any, in any way that I was, I was aware of at that time. I'll talk, maybe talk about that a little later if I have time, but I get to 12 years old and I'm thinking, I, like, I have no idea that I'm a mixed up, confused kid. I'm in the basement of my parents' home, and I'm gonna. This was gonna be my social drinking experience. I, I, this was my time. You know, I had all kinds of sips and everything from uncles and dad, and this was gonna be my time. And I went in the laundry room and I opened up the bar fridge, and there was a bottle, two bottles of beer in there. I grabbed the first bottle and I took took the lid off, and I put it down, and I grabbed the other bottle. It, think of the worst beer in Mississippi. This was like 50. This is LeBac's <laughs> <it was> 50. <laughs> and I slammed it down and I and, and I just waited. I waited for it to happen. I, I stood there in the laundry room in my in, in the parents' basement and I waited for it to happen. And it did. Eight, 10 minutes later, I began to have this feeling. I began to have this sensation, this sort of over. This, this sort of cloak that came over me of warmth and and okayness. Now, here's what I want. This is what I need to understand every day of my life is that all alcohol did for me is it took me up to normal. I just began to feel like I now knew that you guys always felt. I had no idea that I was so mixed up and confused until it was all straightened out. And two bottles of 50, the only two bottles that were there, straightened me out. And I loved it. I just stood there and reveled in this experience of of, of this feeling this sense of ease and comfort that just came over me as a result of these couple of beers. And, 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 and I was quite enjoying it when the room started to spin and you, you know, the spins, right. It just, it started to spin. And I was like, Oh shit. You know, I went out into the wreck and woof, 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 it speeds up. It won't stop spinning. And I go into my bedroom, woof, 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 it speeds up. I lay back and bleah, bleah, bleah. everything I'd ingested the last couple of days flies around the room, like a, some black licorice, a hard boiled egg, some craft dinner stuck on the walls, stuck on the ceiling. And I'm out. I go out, I get up the next morning, I'm covered in all of this goo. I'm just covered in it. And I, and, and I mean, I was, the scent, the smell in that room was like, so acidic. It was burning my nose. And, and I, and I, and I sat up and I was covered in this bile and I, my head was pounding. Oh my God, the stink. It was so gross. My head was pounding and it was a boom, 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 boom. I thought I was going to be sick again. boom. boom, boom. Boom, boom. And then a thought crossed in my head, that was the single greatest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And I knew, I knew at that point I would be doing that again. In this alcoholic home, there was a blind eye or two. You know, and I didn't get in any trouble. I had an older brother who was getting all kinds of trouble. So the I was academically doing really well. And I was good in sports and the hockey team. I played rep hockey and we were traveling with the hockey and all that. And kind i am of starting to drink on a regular basis. And it's flying under the radar. My capacity began to really grow very, very quickly. At 14 and 15 years old, I was drinking almost daily. And I had a little job to support the cause. And, and I had buddies that were doing the same thing because they were a little bit older. We were living in the country. And, and this is just the way we lived. And, and my old man was kind of proud me actually he knew what was going on mom was you know there drunkenness didn't did like it it wasn't very costly at the time we were 15 years old breaking into cottages and stealing stealing whiskey and booze and all that kind of stuff these are the kinds of things that began to happen but up till that point it was just kind of like it looked very very casual in this crazy alcoholic abusive home it just looked normal and uh, lots, of, lots of things were happening inside of me. I very early on began to, the, you know, the thing about alcoholism for me is that my alcoholism happens in between drinks. From the first time I took a drink until the last time I took a drink, alcoholism comes alive when I stop drinking. When I take a couple of drinks, whatever alcoholism is goes away. Whatever beast, whatever insanity that's on me goes away with a couple of drinks. But the problem is, is when I have a couple of drinks, I can't stop. That's problem one with alcoholism is according to our doctor's opinion. When I take any amount of alcohol into my body, no, no matter what, how much, it's very difficult or impossible for me to stop. I don't ever remember stopping except once and it was not pleasant. But what happens is that is the, the, the bigger aspect is that I'll always drink again, even at 15 years old. I'm in the basement of my parents' home for the last time I was welcome there. And I got blood coming out the back, coming out the front. I'm over the toilet. I got my head pressed up against the toilet bowl. It's five o'clock in the morning. You know, and you, you remember the condensation of those toilet bowls, how, how beautiful that felt. When I when I tell that in a full room of Al-Anon's, they all get grossed out. But you Alkies know what I'm talking about. You know, what I mean? <laughs> you got your head pressed against there. Oh God, it feels so good. And 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 I'm not sure. You know, I'm so sick, and I screamed. I'm never ever ever gonna do that again. I'm alone in the room. I'm not telling anybody that. It's a it's a it's a it's a a prophetic sort of thing that I'm screaming out for myself. And I didn't have any idea that I couldn't pull that off. I had no idea. Three o'clock that afternoon, I'm in a bar and I'm on my second or third Caesar, which is vodka and Clamato juice, because it is like my old man. It takes the edge off. I can keep it down. And I don't even remember what took place that morning, because once I get a few drinks into me, I'm off and running. I'm okay. I'm good to go. And my alcoholism perpetuated just like that. It was very seldom ever different. People began to see the sickness sort of uh, and, and it just coming upon me. And, and I lost friends. I lost childhood friends that were my buddies. You know, They were my bike riding buddies, my fort building buddies. My, they were my buddies. You know? And I began to lose those friends. I began to have a propensity for older type things like drugs and fighting and scraps and, and going to places like bars and clubs. And, and some of my little buddies weren't into that stuff. But at 15, 16 years old, I'm all about that and I give up my fishing, and I give up my hockey, my love for all the passions of my life began to get slipped, slip away. And alcohol has become my master, there is no doubt about it. At 17 years old, I talk about this, never want to forget about this is when I met you. And and, 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 (laughs) here's the thing is, is I don't know I have an alcohol problem. I know that when I drink, I get in trouble. And I had this thing about I was framed a lot. (laughs) I would come to in custody and and they would tell me what the charges were. And I thought, man, I don't, I, I have no recollection of any of this. At 17 I'm sitting in this and I'm sitting in custody again. I have no idea why I'm there. And I'm in this, this neutral room. Copper comes in and says, there's somebody here to see. It puts me in this neutral room and I'm waiting and then walks this guy. And this guy's like 107 years old, man. He is an old, old dude. And he's got like this gray Brush cut hair, flat top hair. He's got these great big lines in his forehead. He's got eyebrows. He's got gray hair sticking out that they're in a, not supposed to be there. And moving around when he talks, he's got these big yellow teeth. Big. I, I got to stop describing him like this because I'm actually starting to look like him. He's got these icy blue eyes. And, and he comes in and he says, hi, I'm Bob. Well, hello, Bob. He takes off his satin jacket and hangs it on the back of a chair. Satin Montreal Canadiens jacket, hangs it on the back of the chair. And he sits down and he starts telling me a story. His like all 107 years, man every single goddamn minute he starts telling me his story like I give a shit I'm 17 and this guy's going on and on and on and I reach over and I put my hand on his shoulder and I said buddy it's going to be okay he's going and I was going to drive my truck into the wall with my son on my lap and I'm going man you needed the drinking he won't stop he just goes on and on and he's he's laughing and he's crying and I'm sitting there oh my god who sent this guy what's going on here and he just an hour later you know an hour later now he's 109 he sniffs again and he gets up and he he says thanks for listening and he walks out the door. I go to the coppers, I says, what the hell was that? Who who was that guy? He said that was the ANA's. Well I never asked the ANA's into the into my life. I never asked for that. I just this guy now I tell this story for a reason fast forward about six, seven years from there, I'm actually in a, in a meeting, one of the biggest meetings in the city. And I look over and I see this old geezer in the corner making coffee. And it, it is truly the worst coffee in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. But this old guy's old making coffee in the corner. And I walk up to him and I said, hi, Bob, how are you? And he turns on, hello, son. And I said, listen, I need to ask you something. He said, do you remember me? He says, no. I said, I was in custody and I told him this story. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember you. I said, who sent you? Why did you say, what?" well, nobody sent me. He said, I was having a shitty day. I went to the jail and said, if you got a drunk? And they gave me you. That's it. I just gave you the altruism of Alcoholics Anonymous. I just blew the cover off of everything that you've ever thought about AA. That's it. He was having a bad day and he went to find a drunk. Now I tell that story because our literature talks about a man who's pacing the Mayflower Hotel lobby who's going to get drunk. He happens to be one of our co-founders, but he's going to get drunk. And then pacing that Mayflower Hotel, he decides to get nickels instead of a drink. And when he goes to the phone and he makes those calls, what does he say? He doesn't say "Help me." He doesn't call his sponsor. He doesn't call you know. He doesn't call Abby. He doesn't call his wife. He doesn't call doctor. He 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 says he calls every single number on the church directory. He says, "I'm a rum hound from New York, and I need to find a drunk." And that's what he says. Now, you can imagine the first few people that he hit, how weird they would have thought that was. But lo and behold, he manages to connect. And if you read any literature about Bill and his talk about after what happened that night, it was seven. It was three o'clock in the afternoon when the deal fell apart and he was left alone in Mayflower Hotel. It was seven o'clock at night when he started making those phone calls. He said he slept like a baby that night for the first night in six months when he knew he was going to meet an alcoholic the next day. The beast was gone when he knew he was gonna connect with an alcoholic the next day. When he found Henrietta sibling and Dr. Bob, They set it up for 11 a.m. the next morning and he slept like a baby that night. The altruism of Alcoholics Anonymous is when it's not going well for you, find someone to help, find a drunk, find someone to talk to. That's the altruism of Alcoholics Anonymous. Joe the mechanic will do so much more for you than a therapist or anybody that you're thinking about calling, even dial a prayer. You know, you got it. Like we find each other and and, and it's on. Now, that's why I tell that story about that guy coming to see me. His altruism, his, his, the nature of why he came into this Barton Street Jail, where I was, was driven by a compulsion that was on him. And he comes in and unknowingly addresses a compulsion that's inside of me. And I have no idea that it's even there yet. We awaken to this stuff. And you guys who get off your couches in the middle of the cold winter nights and go out and carry messages to people, I salute you. I owe you my life, and this is why I say I didn't come to the doors of AA. Fast forward to 19 years, 19 years old. I'm in a federal penitentiary now. I'm doing swimmingly well, making most of my own decisions in life. Uh, you know, I, I again framed a couple of couple of accidental bank robbies, that kind of stuff, and I and I end up in custody for a significant amount of time. Now, while there. Uh, I have given up on on life and anybody in it. My family, uh, I pushed everybody away. I don't have a whole lot going on on, on the upside, and uh, and so I'm alone. And uh, I don't even time well. Like a lot of guys, uh, I don't play well. I, I don't play nice even in there. And I spend a lot of time in the hole. And uh, I don't have a, an idea or a thought about about my alcohol problem. I know that making brew and and being a good brewmeister was was important, and that you could get some cred that way. I know that. Drinking was impossible for me not to if it was there. And so I consumed whenever I could. And I got into trouble as many times as I did as I did, because once I start, I can't stop. And that, that was the simple part of it. What ends up happening though is uh, I'm in there for a few years, and, and uh, I'm in the workout pit one day, and uh, there's this adjacent room. And again, I want to talk about these guys who bring alcoholics anonymous to people like me. And I look, and this guy comes into the room, and he skips across the, just skips across the doorway, and I mean, flutters across the doorway. And uh, uh, week after week after week, on the Wednesday, the same dude's coming in, and he's putting on this big pot of coffee and all that kind of stuff. I stick my, he can hear the coffee. Uh, percolating and smell it and I stick my head and I say hey buddy what's up and he says I'm putting on a meat and I said oh whatever and so I go back I work up next week I said hey, you're back again I said he says yeah yeah he said my sponsor says I got to do this to stay sober and I, I didn't even know what sober meant but I said well, <laughs> well, I don't know what a sponsor is man but and I don't know if you noticed, but they like, there's nobody here. Usually a meeting would mean if there's some people here. And uh, the next week he came and I stuck my head in again and I said, buddy, there's nobody here. And he said, well, you're here. So I just stepped in the room and I started chatting with the guy. And this guy's name was Steve. Now, Steve had never done a day in prison. He'd never been in trouble with the law. His sponsor suggested to him that if he wanted to stay sober, that he'd carry a message in behind these walls and that it would probably help him. And that's what he was doing, dutifully as his sponsor had directed. I sat there with this guy and we talked about fish and we talked about women and we talked about a lot of stuff that this was just a really really nice man and I hadn't had a conversation or a visit with anybody like this ever and uh, I really enjoyed his company another con stuck his head in the door another con stuck his head in the door eventually there were six of us in the room and every week this guy would come put on the coffee give us tailor-made cigarettes pour us coffee laugh joke and all he'd listen to us planning bigger and better scores because we were such geniuses you know we we're going to all hook up when we get out you know? <laughs> yeah that's, the best yeah that's where the best plots happen in custody with your cellmates. And what happens is, is uh, he comes in one day and he says, hey, I got these passes for the 13th Institutional Conference of AA. And uh, we said, well, what's that? He said, well, a bunch of alcoholics get together. And I said, no, no, no. I, I heard the A&A thing already. No, no, thank you. And he said, well, there's a roast beef dinner and a dance. I said, pardon? He said, yeah, there's a roast beef dinner and a dance. I said, whoa, a, a roast beef dinner? Yeah. And a dance? Yeah. With chicks? Yeah. So he said, hey, I, I'm an alcoholic, man. Help me. All six of us. You know, hey, yeah, I got a problem with drinking. Hey, my old man was a drunk. Can I come? And so all six of us are going to the A conference. And I got to tell you, man there was some enthusiasm around this little, little little cluster of folks because we were going outside we were going outside on the chain but we were going outside and it was pretty exciting and, and if you've ever done time before you know you know there's just only a couple of things we do well in there and that's cook and, and laundry and uh I go down to the stores to get my laundry for this outing and I I, I picked this this beautiful sort of crisp crisp white shirt like a glare would burn your eyes and a, and, a, and a tie with the stripes going this way and and a navy blue jacket that had buttons on it with anchors on it, you know, the gold anchors. And, and I had these gray slacks with these pin presses on them. And, and they wouldn't give me a belt or, or laces. I'm not sure why, but uh, my nice shiny shoes. And, and I, and I got this suit from stores and I'm, I'm ready to go. You know, I take it back to my cell that night and, and I put it, I'm, I'm steaming up the room with the hot water in the sink. And I'm, I'm putting it underneath my mattress and rolling on it to press it. And, and I can hardly sleep that night. I'm so excited about this thing. And uh, you know, we get up in the morning, I, I put on this, this outfit. I look in the mirror you know I just get it all up, get the tie and I look in the mirror and I put a big wad of Vaseline in my hair you know and I look in the mirror and I okay good to go and all the cells open up six doors open up we all step out dressed exactly the same (laughs) going to the AA conference anonymous conference we're dressed exactly the same we go down they put us in handcuffs and shackles and we're getting on this great big green bus that says correctional services of Canada on it with a flag and, and 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 bars in the windows. We're on handcuffs and shackles and, and we're in the bus and we're going and saying, I got butterflies in my stomach. I feel like I'm going to puke. I'm so nervous and, and excited and nervous. And, and I don't have anything to anesthetize. I haven't felt this way in a long, long time. And, and probably since my court dates, you know, I haven't felt like that in a long time. And we're going to this institution and we get up and there you guys are standing out front with your styrofoam cups and your cigarettes and 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 puffing away probably talking about fitness (laughs) the van pulls up in front and uh if you've ever had handcuffs and shackles on you know exactly what i'm about to say they're always like four inches shorter than they're supposed to be you know so when i go to step off that last step i go down and all the five guys behind me pile on top of me (laughs) all piled up and we're all tangled up in all the hardware and the chains are rattling and you weirdos are just standing there going welcome 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 it's like you don't even see the handcuffs and shackles like we are really weird we freak new guys out we do and new gals we freak them out because it's welcome you know it really is anonymous and uh we get into the building and we're all tangled up in these chains got our jackets all twisted up in them and stuff like that and we get to the bottom of the stairs and we get all undone and and they open up the doors and there's like three million people in the room And I just gave you another new guy experience, a new gal experience. When those doors opened, there was at least 42 billion people in that room. And my heart started to pound. I am not a man. Don't talk, don't trust, don't feel with the rules I grew up with. You don't let anybody see what's going on inside. But for the first time in so long, I'm feeling all of this anxiety and this like almost like panicky, fearful uh, stuff going on inside of me. And I'm so aware of it. They take all this stuff off and I go to walk in the room and I mad dog everybody. I I go right to default. I'm going to stick my chest down 230 pounds of solid jailhouse muscle and I don't give a shit about too much. And I'm going to let you know that my shoulders go back and I walk across the room like I own the goddamn place. And I'm looking at every one of you and making sure You stay the hell back. You stay away from me. And that's the same as a signal I'm sending out. That's a message I'm sending out. Now, inside, I'm terrified. I get to my seat and it's like, oh, my God, I'm safe. You know, it was like the, the longest walk I had ever walked was across that room, that hallway to get to my seat. And I tell you that, too, because those are the guys I work best with today. The big gnarly pricks who stand in the back of the room with their arms folded, all tatted up, pressing on their biceps, making, you know, making damn sure that nobody gets in and nobody comes. They're ordered there. They're mandated there by whatever body, whether it's their partner, whether it's their law, whatever it is, they're not, they don't want to be there. And those are the guys I seem to get. And those are the guys I work best with. And it's, I think, because I'm so in touch with that experience and that fear and that, that, that littleness, man, I. If I could have crawled up in a hole, I would have. But my default is rage and anger. My default is to lash out and strike first. So I go across, I sit down, and I'm sitting there. I'm having an amazing experience that night. You know, I'm looking around the room. I'm looking for her, right? I'm scoping the room. I don't know where I'm going to take her, but I'm looking for her. And uh, while sitting there, the the guy gets up and speaks. Another AA guy, he's an old geezer too, 115 years old. He tells the same story the other guy told. It's very similar. And I heard it. And I thought, yeah, I heard that before. And then we, we have this great dinner. And, and the chairperson gets up. This was an important piece. The chairperson gets up and he says, is there anybody out there in the a vapor parole passing? In? Could you please stand up? And 15 of us stood up and all you weirdos clapped. You clapped, whistled, clapped. It was pretty enthusiastic, I have to say. But then he said, is there anybody out there has ever done time? Could you please stand up? And the chairs scraped across the floor and everybody in the place stood up at once. And you could hear this whoosh. And it was like it sucked me right in like a vortex. It's it was like oh no, no 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 not the A and A's. I knew then I was one of you. It was like not A <laughs> Really, I'm a bad dude. I'm a A These are my people. Oh shit! And everybody started falling on each other and laughing and joking and shaking hands. And there was a young girl that was crying and. They were free, man. They were free from whatever had been on them. They were free. And I thought, I have that. I have to have that. And I'm not saying that out loud, but inside, I'm just dripping with tears inside my chest. Have you ever had that feeling where the tears were inside and there was nothing outside? And that's what I was sitting down. That's what my experience was. And, uh, you know, then, then uh, this fluttery guy, Steve, he comes fluttering up behind me and he puts his hands and he goes, Hey, wasn't that great? And I said, ah, "The roast beef was a little tough. And he says, Yeah, you, well, you're ready to go. And I said, Go. I said, Go where? What, what about the dance? What about the chicks? He goes, I lied. <laughs> so. We, I got to tell you, man, I'm pretty pissed. You know, I'm pretty pissed off. And and all the other guys are looking at me and say, what the hell? And it's like, I don't know. You know, and then we go back and they put the handcuffs and shackles and they escort us into the, into the van and we're going back and I'm stoic. I'm pretty quiet and inside I'm angry, but I'm not, I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. I became a conundrum. I wanted to hate the son of a bitch and I couldn't. Something happened to me there in that room. When we got back to the institution, I told everybody what I was going to do that guy. When he came back in, I waited for him. You know, on the Wednesday, I waited for the guy to come back in he come walking back in and I get inside the room and he's got his back to me. And he turns around with a great big smile and I couldn't help it. I smiled back. And the first thing you know, I started laughing. You know, he got, he got one over us. right? And we sat down, we started talking. Now he'd been there for months and we had never talked about the A and A's. And in that room that he was in, there was these 12 things on the wall. And I had seen them but because they had embossed the word God, wherever God was in. I I immediately turned away and I thought that's for the religionists. That's for the people, the Bible study guys, the jumping for Jesus guys, all the do-gooders that come into prisons. That's 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 for them. That's why it's in this room. I had never looked at the steps. So I take a look at the steps and he says, he's looking, hey, look, it's okay, powerless over alcohol. I said, Well, yeah, you know, when I when I drink, bad things happen. You know, that's that's not a that's not a tough one. That's not a stretch for me. I, 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 When I drink, bad stuff happens. I get that. Step two is came to believe. Nah, I, I says you're getting a little strange on me there. I says, I can feel a vibe coming that I'm not that comfortable with. And in uh, step three, you don't even hide it anymore. And you actually use a capital G. It's not like it's you don't even hide it. It's like, and then step four, I sit down and write this stuff down that I did. I'm not writing anything down. I mean, I, I'll do an inventory because I did some horrific things. But I'm going to lay there and think about this stuff at night. That's, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to drink. And I'm going to lay there at night and think about all the, all the horrific things I did. And step five, tells somebody that is a ridiculous proposition at best. Step six and seven, now you're going right for God again. We're not going to do that. I told you that earlier. We're not going to do that. Step eight and nine, I'm not paying back the money. Whoever came up with that needs to rethink this whole program. I pay back the money. It's not happening. Step 10 deeply weird still to this day. And I hope I get a chance to talk about it for a few minutes later. Step 11. Now you're not hiding it at all. I'm jumping for Jesus down in James street in Hamilton with a Bible. And that's, that's how it's going to be. And I'm not doing that. Step 12, help people. Yeah, I can do that. So I had a one, four and 12 program. I took them right off the wall and I put them right into my life. And for the next several weeks, several months, I began to have an experience of a three-step don't drink. Think about all the shitty things you did and go and tell people they can have what you have if they just do what you did. And that's how I spent the rest of my time in prison. Now, nobody got sober around me, but I got a parole. Imagine that. My sentence had been reduced on appeal. I was right there by mandatory. I end up walking out of the institution into an alcohol treatment program. And I got to tell you, my life, my life. If you've ever been a new person in sobriety, I wasn't drinking. And I had this amazing two and a half step program that that was powerful because I didn't even wanna drink. So I come out into this institution and I'm 23 years old now. And, and, and when I went inside in, in the institution, I had all these buddies and, and a lot of those guys, uh, they had, um, what do you call them? Uh, when you get up in the morning and you make a lunch jobs, they had those job things, you know? So, so they, they, these guys are going to work and stuff. These 20, my buddies are going to work and they got those, when you come home and everybody says, hi, Families, they got jobs and they got families. I should have those things. So I, you know, I'm only I'm out for 14 days, and I start having new guy thinking, right? I start thinking, geez, I should have a family and a a career. So I went down to this strip club on Highway 20 in Hamilton here, because I knew I could get those things that afternoon. Now the problem with me and and Roland Hazard and and many people on this screen is that when I walked into that bar, not drinking, goddamn. And I'm in an alcohol treatment program. I drink. I'm going back to prison. When I walk in that bar, I don't drink. I don't drink. And the waitress says, would you like anything from the bar? And I only got one answer for that question. I said, yeah, bring me a Jack Daniels and an X, please. And as she's walking away, I don't start thinking to myself, man, you better get out of here. This is not going to go well. I start thinking to myself, I wonder who my cell partner is going to be. I wonder what parent institution they're going to send me to. That's where I go. I don't start thinking, man, because I am an alcoholic. And my my disease happens in between drinks. I haven't even got it in my system yet. And I already know I'm going to prison and I can't stop it, even if I wanted to. And when I get that third or fourth drink into me, she comes back. I say, "You bring me a double." I'm off and running, and for the next couple of weeks, my life explodes. The crime and the, and the frivolous nature of my life began to find its way very, very quickly. There was no pretense. So I can't stop when I start. Never been able to. I'm not hiding this from anybody. Anybody that had garnered any hope for me or anything like that, it was cast out the window. My parole was suspended. I'm in back in custody after a, after a fairly long run, and I'm so sick. And for the first several days I was in there, my brother brother came in to see me and he talks about looking in my eyes and seeing just dead. He said, it just looked dead. Your eyes looked dead. And I had no explanation or or, or, or comprehension of what had occurred for me. I had no idea. I just knew that I'm going to probably spend the rest of my life in prison. And when I walked up back into that that range, it was was there for 14 days. I was on Librium. I was on all kinds of come down drugs. So, so sick. I started to clear. And my dry date is somewhere around that date. But I'll tell you what happened to me. Two weeks, I walked up and down a range and I told people what I was going to tell these guys in this halfway house who were coming to see me to let me back out. I was going to tell them, take the program, the AA, the big book, stick it. I don't need you. I don't need you. I don't need anybody. And these guys walked in there and I said exactly that. All my buddies were standing at the grill. They heard every, every chop that I gave these guys and out they walked. I walked back into the range and all my buddies were going top left, cause top left, right on. Now I'm going back to prison and, and these guys are congratulating me. And I'm walking up and down that range and I feel like I'm going to explode inside. I go to the to copper. I said, to, man, I got, I need to get in my cell. And, and he said, why? And I said, I don't feel good, man. something bad is going to happen. He puts me in the cell. I walk over and I see those two men walking across the parking lot in Hamilton here, just outside of the institution. And both those guys had told me their stories. Both those guys had told me their AA stories. And I went into a full-blown rage. I had no I don't even know, like to describe it as like an absolute sort of, it was like a redout. out, you know, I began to destroy everything I could get my hands on, like, like all my, all my worldly possessions, like my comb and my toothbrush and, and your books and, and, and my blankets and my, and I began to destroy everything. I, I started pounding on the desk and when I couldn't pound on the desk anymore, I dropped to my knees, I was pounding on the steel stool. And when I couldn't pound on that anymore, I was pounding on the concrete floor. And I said, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to live like this anymore and that was July the 16th, 1987. And what happened in that moment was that on my knees in that jailhouse floor, I began to feel this sense of peace and ease that I had never felt before. This cleansing came over me in a heartbeat that, I, all I knew is that everything that was red went to white. I stood up and then there was this powerful, powerful light that was inside of me and around me. And I could feel it. It was to the touch. It was, it was tactile. I could actually feel that something had happened. And I heard a voice say, you don't have to, you don't have to live like this anymore. And that was July the 16th, eighty-seven. That's my drive date. I went to the door and I asked the coppers to let me out and, and, uh, and call those guys back. And they said, they're not coming back after what you said to them. 15 minutes later, those guys came back at 15 minutes later, I was on the guy's couch and I was knee deep in Alcoholics Anonymous again. Now, the thing about it is is I want to say that you know, new guy thinking a, a, a bruised ego is, 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 is not good enough. It's not sufficient. The ego must be crushed. It's 8:40 now. And I want to talk to you about the power of what transpired over the next little while. I was around Alcoholics Anonymous, not drinking there for, for a little while. And this guy stuck his head in the door and he says, I'm your sponsor, son. And I said, pardon. Uh, he said, I'm your sponsor. I said, hold on a second. I know I've been drunk in AA for a little while, but how come I don't get to ask somebody to be my sponsor? He says, you're too effing stupid. And I was like, holy, st- wait a second there, buddy. Like, uh, you might want to chill a little bit. And out of my mouth came, okay. And he said, we're going to go to meetings for the rest of your life. And I was like, hey, wait a second here, man. I was going down to get a family when I got interrupted. I said, I got some stuff. To-. And out of my mouth came, Okay. And for the next five years, I was in that guy's back pocket. For the next five years, we attended meetings every single day together. At 4 30, almost every single day, I showed up at his house and knocked on the door while we were his and his family were eating dinner and they invited me in and I broke bread with them. For the next five years, we sat in meetings and we heard about people's needs. And, and we'd find out that the young woman was there with three kids and she had no groceries. We'd go out to an all-night grocery store, grab the groceries, go to the house, knock on the door, put the groceries on the step, and hide in the bushes and laugh like two little schoolgirls. And then he'd turn to me and he'd say, Now don't you tell anybody, son. If you tell somebody, it won't. And then the next day, everybody in the city would know. (laughs) So, you know, do what you're told. Don't don't worry about whether they're doing it. Just do what you're told. So I I had this amazing uh, experience in Alcoholics Anonymous in the first five years. And I got to tell you, I loved AA. From the time I came, I loved Alcoholics Anonymous, you were my people, that experience I had years before was not an erroneous sort of situation, I, you were, I've never had the struggle with being with you, never, 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 and I began to, to, to uh, experience this a lot, I set up my group, I had, you know, a lot of young people, and there was lots of good scraps in my meeting, and all that kind of stuff, and, and we would, we had this very collection of craziness around me, and, and we grew up in Alcoholics Anonymous together, me and a bunch of other guys, and, and uh, because I have a big mouth, I started speaking a lot, and I started sponsoring a lot of guys guys. I had the stable of guys that I was sponsoring. And in these first several years of Alcoholics Anonymous, my life was lit up. And when I say lit up, I mean, absolutely lit up. My mother would have absolutely kissed the ground that you walked on. She came to all of my anniversaries because you guys had done the miraculous. You had changed her boy. I, I, my, I had a car that had the same license plate on the front as the back. I shit you not exactly the same license plates on the front and back. My life was was transitioned. I was I was in school, I'd become educated. I, I had one of those job things. I, I I I began to have family. I began to have children. You know my my life was was on fire. And uh, the way you know and Josh had mentioned this and then this is where it comes, Josh, I mean my relationship with Mark so what happens is I'm asked to speak. I, I have been involved so much. Here's, here's the way it looked. Here's the way it looked. Is that for the first few years that I was in Alcoholics Anonymous, it seemed like it was about not drinking. And then the next few years I was in Alcoholics Anonymous, it seemed like it was all about love. I don't know if you guys had that experience or if you've been around here for a little it was just like a love, 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 love. It was all about the love, Hubs, hugs, not drugs. We were giving each other, you know, gift bags and shit and all kinds of fluffy pillows and stuff. And it's like all about the love, you know, love. It's all about the love. Drugs, not drugs. And uh, so, so that's, that's my experience. And, and it wasn't a coincidence that I had a little girl at that time. Her name is Gidget. She's Amanda. She's this tiny little roast beef type looking thing. And I remember the first time she looked up at me and I looked down at her and she told me, she said the words, I love you. And I couldn't even hear it. But I had this experience that I, I knew I had arrived, that I had hit the marker in Alcoholics Anonymous, that I had hit the pinnacle, that this was all about love. And then I met some guys who were talking about that capital G stuff. And they were talking about it with, a, with, a, with, with, with vehemence. They were, they were pretty sincere about their, their passion around this capital G stuff. And I thought, this is pretty cool shit. You know, so I started to realize, oh my God, God, it's all about God. This whole thing's been about God. It's then it became God, God, God. you listen to my talks, you hear my CDs and tapes back then. It's ridiculous, like God, 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 God. We were doing native sweats and we were running through the woods screaming, primal screaming, like man, yeah, 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 Robert Bly, you know, we were doing all kinds of stuff, you know, and, and it was all about getting connected with this God. Right? And it was it was incredible, like a, uh, you know, we were giving each other stones, rather than smooth stones, and we were doing sweetgrass ceremonies and and. Uh, it was all about God, you know, and I, I because I got so engaged in alcoholics, nine, 10 and 12 years sober, uh, I was asked to speak at a lot of conferences and I began to speak on the Sundays and the Sunday mornings and stuff like that, because it was my my profound experience when I first got sober and my belief of God. Now, I hope you're following along about what I'm not talking about, what I haven't even mentioned yet. So I'm having this Alcoholics Anonymous whole person experience. My life is incredible. Now I've got a career. I'm making good money. I've got family. I've got all these things. And at 14 years sober, uh, I'm out having a cigarette with the main banquet speaker. And uh, he was a great big burly barrel chested man with with really white hair and a white beard and uh he's standing we're puffing away smoking and we were actually talking about fitness he's he's quite athletic and uh he cared a lot about his body but the poor guy couldn't quit smoking and that was his demise but what ended up happening was uh, he out of the blue right out of the blue as I'm telling him what a great AA guy I am I am he says you're asleep dreaming you're awake and I said pardon he said yeah you're you're asleep dreaming you're awake I said, what the hell are you talking about? He said, well, I've been listening to you. And he says, I can tell there's an experience in Alcoholics Anonymous that you haven't even had yet. I said, dude, maybe you weren't listening. I was telling you, like, I kind of run AA in Canada, man. And he said, no, no. He says, I can tell you've never taken the steps. And I was like, insulted. I said, what the, what are you talking about? He said, I can tell you've never had a 12 step experience. And have you ever taken the steps? And I said, well, I, I belong to a 12 and 12 meeting. I mean, we read the steps everywhere. He said, I didn't say read the steps. He said, I can tell you've never taken the steps. And if you'd like, because I could help you with that right now. And I thought that was blasphemy. What do you mean right now? And he, he escorted me up to his hotel, and we walked in the room and he qualified me as an alcoholic for the first time that I'd been in Alcoholics Anonymous, 14 years sober. I was a good meeting makers, make a guy. I went to all kinds of meetings and conferences. And and when I sponsored guys, boy, I sponsored them. I ran their goddamn lives. I told them everything that they should do. I'm 23 years old, giving grown men banking advice. All I knew about banking was stick them up. That's it. And I'm telling, I'm giving guys financial advice. I'm giving guys family advice. I'm giving guys, and they're taking it. That's the miracle isn't that was giving it to them is that these grown men were taking advice from this little snot rocket who knew nothing about life, nothing. And, and here I was in Alcoholics Anonymous, king of the world, and I had no idea that I would missed the experience entirely. And this guy said, you missed the experience entirely. He qualified me as an alcoholic. Powerlessness is the only issue in Alcoholics Anonymous, he said. It's the only issue, and your life's unmanageable by you. It's unmanageable by you. You can't stop when you're starting. You can't stop starting. Your life gets so restless, irritable, and discontent that without something, something, and in my life, it was promiscuity or gambling or all kinds of stuff like that. And But God damn it, I wasn't drinking. It was a good day. I didn't drink today. You know, I was into all kinds of nefarious activities and lies and deceit and debauchery, but I didn't drink today. You know, and he puts me in this position where I have to look at myself solely, look at myself. And he, he asked me squarely, he says, In the second step, he said, do you now believe or are you willing to believe? He says, I can tell that you got a Bush League pinch hitter, but God's everything or else he's nothing. What's your choice? And this is how our conversation went. And I'm thinking to myself, and I want you to understand this. I'm thinking to myself, where's he getting this stuff? I live in a really dark AA place where nobody was using the big book at all at all in my area. People around here get insulted when I say that. Too bad. I've been doing it way too long now. Uh, No big books to be found. And I've got a a, a theoretical 12-step experience in my head that must have happened to you guys. I was hoping it would happen to me one day, but that's it. I'm living on that. I'm living on my powerful spiritual experience on July the 16th, 1987 in that jail cell, trying to transmit that message with no effect. And so he, he says to me, he said, would you do this? Uh, do me a favor here. He said, we talked about selfishness and self-centeredness and the part that, that had played in my life. And he's doing this without a book in his hand. And he said, would you say a prayer with me? And I said, sure. And he cleared out the, the coffee table in between him and I, and he draped his arms over me. And he was a big man and I'm not small. He's a, he's a big man. And uh, he said these words, he said, God, I offer myself up to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. And he said it in such a way that I had heard prayer as a Catholic kid and all that kind of stuff. And I've been full gospel in prison. And I heard this prayer like i had never heard a prayer uttered before. And in my mind, I thought, where are these words coming from? This divinity is incredible. What is this? And he got up and he explained to me that I could have this experience too. This was a third step prayer. This was an experience out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous if I wanted it. And he and I joined forces for the next little while and my life changed forever. That guy was Mark Houston. Josh introduced him at the beginning. You can Google him if you don't know who I'm talking about. Uh, the bottom line is he stopped in and he changed my life forever. He helped me through my inventory. I came out of that experience in that room, a different man. My talk on the Sunday morning was one of the one of the strangest talks that have ever happened in my life. My sponsor, that sponsor I talked to you about earlier in the first five years, wouldn't has never talked to me since because I just got up there, and awakened. I got and, and was so filled with the understanding that I knew nothing that I shared that. And I thought, how could anybody have told me? They didn't know either. And anybody that comes up to me now and says, don't you remember, man, I took the steps back. And I said, well, why did you keep it secret? Like, how did you keep it secret from me? So don't say those things. If you're in a dark area, don't tell people that you took the steps if you didn't. It's, it's dangerous at best. But I want to say, I went back to 14 years sober. I went back to the guys that I sponsored. And I began to, to, to talk to them about this process. And many of them wanted nothing of it. And some, some of them did and have survived and done very, very well today. And I sponsor men only through the 12 steps now. That was that. that was 14 years sober that my life changed. I'm 30. July 16th, 87. What does that make me? 34. Six? No, I don't. I don't even know the math anymore. Bottom line is, is, is I haven't had a drink since then, and I have lived knee deep in the solution since then. So I began to engage in this process of the 12 steps. How much time do I have left, Jenny? L- literally, do I have eight minutes left? Six minutes? I could listen to you for another hour, so don't ask me. Okay, then just keep everybody muted <laughs> and stay here, guys. I don't want you to go anywhere because. What's the point of all of this if none of this shit worked? Right? What's the point of it if none of it was real? Like we get together on Zoom here and we have a few laughs for an hour, but what about the other 23 and a half hours of the day? Like, what about that? You know, well, my experience back then was I was running recklessly, willfully through life and I had bumped and bruised and hurt a lot of people and did a lot of damage, stone cold, sober. When I began to have the experience of these 12 steps and began to bring this creator, this, this power, this God into my life in step three, and I did inventory for the first time through the big book of resentment, fear, and sex conduct, and I shared that information that I had garnered. Those were clear eyes and clear head. I had shared that experience in my fifth step with another alcoholic. I took the hour, and after the hour, I realized that I had, to, for the first time in 14 years, done the first five steps, the first five proposals were clear to me, and I asked God to remove the defects of character and shortcomings that had plagued me all of those years. All of those years of not drinking, my defects of character and shortcomings were known to me. I was a liar, a cheat, and a thief, stone cold sober. I was better at it, better at it because I was sober. And I had myself convinced and fooled because every once in a while I would pitch a nice, you know, I hid behind good motives and I would pitch a nice thing out there and I would, you know, wrestle satisfaction out of that. And, you know, when I shared this stuff and I got into six and seven, it, it 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 was really rudimentary. But I started to knock on doors for the first time and make amends. I began to pay back the money. I began to look people in the eye that I had hurt. And I began to have an experience in Alcoholics Anonymous that I was meant to have many years before. And my experience is just my experience. I see it now as exactly what it was meant to be. I have no regrets and no problems. I'm not blaming anybody. This was my trail. This was my my life, my experience. And when I start making these amends, I enter into the world of the spirit. I begin to sort of see this thing in the 10th step that weirded me out so much many, many years before. I start looking at this and saying, wait a sec. There's something to this. There's something to this. Life. I have four children now. I've got four grandchildren. I have this, this incredible career. I work with schizophrenic alcoholics and drug addicts. It's a very challenging career. I, I have uh, parents who've passed away, a, a younger brother who's passed away. I have an older brother and a younger sister. And I, Life is just beautiful and, and wonderful and, and tragic and, 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 and painful. And it's, it's all of those things. And I'm smack dab right in the middle of it, trying to stay connected to this power. So what happens is, is I see this 10th step. Well, who knew that all the secrets to good living were tied up in the 10th step? I had no idea. I had no idea that nothing can happen in this world that I cannot sort of overcome or be a part of the this resolution within moments. The entire purpose of the 10th step is to get us into the right here, right now, is that when these things crop up, any of these difficult, difficult things, the first thing I have to do is ask God, it wants to remove it. I learned to do that in the six and seven steps. And then it says... We Then it says we tell somebody about that. I learned to do that in the fifth step. And then it says we make amends if we've harmed anybody in the process. Well, I learned to do that in the eighth and ninth steps. And then it says we resolutely turn our attention to someone we can help. We resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. I learned that's the 12-step work. So I go four through nine and then 12 all like this immediately as soon as one of these things crop up and I start to live that way unconsciously I start to live that way every once in a while something pops up that, 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 something, oh my god this shit works this is incredible and I'm loving sobriety and I'm loving life and uh, and I want to talk about this real quickly if I can't drive into my home group one night home group guy absolutely love my home group and uh, I get a phone call that my daughter's hung herself so I got this daughter who's one of us she's she's an amazing kid she's one of us and uh, she hung herself, and and I get the call, and and I pull my car over, and I and and I lose it, my default, I lose it. I start smashing the dash, smashing the mirror, smash, I'm grabbing my steering wheel. I'm only like three minutes down the road from my meeting, and I and then right away this, I get overwhelmed with this idea that I ask God at once to remove it. And I did. I screamed out, please take this from me. Take this from me. I'm of no use whatsoever. And I put my car, and drive, and I go down the hill. My friend Brian, who I do a lot of workshops with and stuff, is standing on the parking lot and I fall into his arms and I tell him what's going on. He says, what do you want to do? And I said, well, look at the drug buggy he just pulled up and all the piss tanks were falling out of it. There was a couple of drunk guys. And I said, let's take care of business here and then, and then we'll look after it. If it, was just, it was just first things first. Guys, you might not agree, but this is the bottom line. This is how my this is my life. It's my life and first things first. So we went into that meeting. I sat on my hands and, and, uh, we, Brian mostly carried a message of, of absolute grace and power. And after the meeting lasted 45 minutes, 50 minutes. And I turned to him and said, I got to go to the hospital. He drove me down to the hospital. When I walked into the hospital, I saw my wife in the ICU and I, I, I went over and I hugged her and, and I whispered in her ear, it's going to be okay. And it's because I knew it was. And I walked over to the doctors and the nurses and I thanked them for looking after my girl. And, uh, um, that's not me. It's not, that's not me. I'm walking in there screaming and yelling, help my daughter. I walk into the room and Sarah's there. She's got all this. She's all, you know, tubed up and, and everything's electric and just iron lungs keeping keep alive. I put my hand underneath her head and I, I lift her head up and I just kiss her in the forehead and I tell her everything's going to be okay. And it's cause I knew it was, that is not the guy that was in the car an hour before. That's not the guy that got the news. Now, I tell you that story because that's about six six years ago, six years ago. If an understanding of the 10th step with the guys I work with anyways seems to have had an effect of setting them free, because here's my experience just pre-COVID my, my oldest daughter rolled over an ATV and she banged her head around the roll bars and, and uh, I saw her a couple of days later and I could tell she was concussed and I said, man, you're going to need to go to the hospital you dummy, I mean, <laughs> crazy she, she's an adventurer, she, great, go you go to the hospital, so she goes to the hospital and uh, they tell her, man there's something there and then she comes into the Hamilton hospital, the big hospital and and uh, she calls me crying, her husband's driving the truck she's bawling her eyes out and, and uh, he doesn't know what to do, he's a good dude but he just doesn't know how to, and she needs she needs her dad. Daddy, she needs me and she's screaming and, and she on the phone with me and uh, I hang the phone up at work and I, I immediately go to my default and I go, I swear to God, I look up, I go, what the, f- really, really? And then immediately it comes upon me as God wants to remove it. And I, so I got up and I walked over to the room adjacent. I dropped to my knees and I said, God, you need to take this from me. She's coming right here right now. I need you to take this from me so that I can be there for her. I got up, I walked out. I told my coworker exactly the news that I had just got. I walked out the door down the stairs and she came into the back parking lot and she fell into my arms and she sobbed hysterically. And I kissed her on the side of the face, kissed her on her head. And I told her that it's going to be okay. And it's because I knew it was, it's because I knew it was. Alcoholics Anonymous changed that one hour six years ago to about four minutes two years ago and has changed it to four seconds today. I wouldn't want to live any other way. The relationship that I have with this God is I've sought through reading, I've sought through prayer, I've sought sought through meditation, I've I've sought through church, I've sought through all of these things. I I don't know if I strike you as a jumper for Jesus kind of guy, but I am on fire for God. I am on fire for the God that we talk about in this Alcoholics Anonymous program, your God, my God, the God. I am on fire for it. And, And the reason is because I'm never closer to that God as when I am with you. The 12th step helps me realize the 11th step having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, I tried to carry this message to alcoholics. When I get engaged in the process of recovery with another alcoholic, God is always there. And it's never so obvious as when I'm with another Alki. These times when I get this news about my daughter, or when I get the news of somebody's passing, we lost eight young people in Alcoholics Anonymous just before COVID and overdoses and all kinds of uh, suicide and all kinds of nefarious circumstances. And I, I was heartbroken. A couple of them were guys I worked with and uh, we all suffered very, badly. And I began to doubt, like not doubt God. I began to doubt like, what are we missing here? And, and it was nothing. It was all this sort of, these things aren't in design to pull us closer to God. God doesn't play like that. But the fact of the matter is, is when I have allowed God to let me come closer to him as a result of these experiences, I am always safe and protected. There's never too hard of terms. This, this power, this, 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 this relationship with this God, it's all I've ever been seeking. It's all I'd ever wanted. Now, who knew that it would come through you? Who knew that it would come through? Like, if, again, if you see me, In in my community and and in my work and in my family, uh, I'm always with you. You are a part of my lives. I fish with you. I play hockey with you. All those passions that I had way back when that I let go, they're all back now and and heavily so. But I do it sober and I do it with you guys. You know, so this thing about this thing about recovery is, you know. it's 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 a very interesting thing and and I, and I and Zoom has allowed us to get to to me anyway, I get to a lot of meetings that I perhaps normally would not get to. And I have become really, really uh, interested in sitting and listening. So I sneak into a lot of rooms and I just sort of audit, you know. <laughs> I sit and listen and I have an AA experience. And, uh, and I got to tell you, I mean, I have grown, uh, in my love and appreciation of alcoholics so much more as a result of zoom. It's incredible. And I'm not saying like, cause I'm back at my home group now and I'm loving every minute of it, but, but this, this experience has been absolutely wonderful to pull us together. And, uh, uh, You know, I was just saying to Chris, he was taught earlier, I heard a guy talk last night and uh, the expansiveness to which he understands his spiritual living today is something that I want to shoot for. It's something that I want to aspire to. And it's not an understanding of it. It's less knowledge. It seems like that's what it is. It's like, you know, go on and we hear these guys sort of go on at length about this stuff. And it's like, oh my God, they know so much more than me. No, they just got rid of a lot more than me. They just unburden themselves with the with the intellect. They unburden themselves with the objective of knowing anything, and all they do is they live their life and experience. And when you live your life and experience, it's pretty hard to have conflict. It's pretty hard to have conflict. And uh, and and being a witness and being an observer to the power and how I'm I'm sort of you know initiated into the circumstances of life by this power, I just appreciate it. You know, And who knows? Who knows where we're going next? Who knows? So I, I want to say thank you so much, Josh, for asking me to come here. And I want to I, I just say that I love Alcoholics Anonymous from the bottom of my heart. If you heard nothing else, I hope you heard that. Thank you very much for having me, guys. Ooh. Wow.